0: This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery, proud to be a dairy, farm, family owned cooperative for more than 100 years. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop.
1: You're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. So we're just beginning month three of disruption disruptions to daily life caused by COVID-19. And uh, here in New York City, at least, we're pretty much still just staying home. So how long that lasts is anyone's question. Um, I'm still in the closet here at my home in Brooklyn. Um, And, you know, restaurants around the country are grappling with how and if they will reopen to diners. So in the meantime, a lot of us are still just cooking a lot. And it's a little strange because on this show, we often talk about home cooking. And I've written a lot about home cooking as this like intentional choice that's you know going against the grain of all the convenience of takeout or you know trying to match up to all the splendors of dining out um at least for the fast-paced urban lifestyle that's surrounded by just buzzy restaurants each one more tempting than the last new one so my guest today was evidently very well aware of that when she was writing her cookbook her latest one that is because she begins her introduction to her cookbook R- Kitchen Remix by writing, Many of the most adventurous eaters and food-loving citizens I know are intimidated by cooking. They can't wait to visit new restaurants, taste unfamiliar dishes from other cultures and countries, try new sauces or spices they've read about, but they don't feel quite as intrepid at the stove. They have to have they have the basics under their belts and are comfortable with a few simple techniques or dishes if a little bored. They want to incorporate some of what they're experiencing as diners and shoppers into their home kitchens, but they're not sure how. Maybe you're one of them. If so, I wrote Kitchen Remix for you. So that would be none other than food writer, cookbook author, anthology editor, cookbook tournament founder, and... uh, all-around great food writer, Charlotte Druckmann, and her latest cookbook is Kitchen Remix, 75 Recipes for Making the Most of Your Ingredients. Hey, Charlotte. Thanks for coming on there.
2: Hi. I'm so happy to be on this show. <laughs> Can I tell you, I've actually wanted to be on the show for a while, um, but like I, I would never ask because I just would feel like you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> oh I'm really, really happy when you ask me. Yeah.
1: I was so... I, I meant to um, when Women in Food came out, but when I heard this was coming out, I was like, mm-hmm. ah you know there was so much going on when women in food was coming out and that was such a great anthology um which came out last fall which you were part of yes i was so thrilled to be um <laughs> if not like a, an essay contributor which oh my god those were so great and it's nominated for a james beard award so congratulations um Thanks. i was so 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 thrilled to contribute my uh, thoughts to it in this really really um great anthology that has not just essays but like you know quotes from tidbits. Yeah. I think that's a, that's like a professional genre, like tidbits. Tidbits. (laughs) I'm a tidbit writer.
2: (laughs) It's both a professional and food genre. So it's perfect for us. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I'm so glad that we could finally have you on the show. It's like, it's been overdue apparently. So, but you know, it's really interesting. So your book came out in April, Kitchen Remix. And this was when, you know, you couldn't dine in dine in a restaurant even if you wanted to. So like the tables are kind of turned. Um and, you know, there's this new emphasis on practical everyday cooking how-to as like a mere survival skill. So what has this been like for you as the author of a cookbook that launched during this time?
0: Um
2: it's been I have to say like I you know, I I'm a very honest person, so when I answer <laughs> this is going to be really blunt in a lot of ways, but <laughs> Women on Food came out in October, right? I think it's at the, at the end of October, which means that there was, there was less than six months between these two books. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to that, I actually wrote Kitchen Remix first. So I developed the recipes for it in 2016, believe it or mm. not. And wow. I wrote most of it that year too. And then otherwise, I think, you know, edits, edits and stuff are – were like 2017 and then it got pushed back and then I pushed it back because of the anthology. So it was trippy in a lot of ways, trippy because I felt removed from it to some extent because it had happened so long ago in my mind, but also removed from it because I had just gone through Putting a book out into the world that I care deeply about, so it was like, which is exhausting, and it was a good kind of exhausting because I loved that book and I loved that I got to spend so much time with so many women who I loved. So I'm not going to complain about it, but it's just, it's you get tired after that, and so the thought that like, oh God, you have to rev up now because you have another book coming out was like. (laughs) I kept kind of being like, "I just don't have it in me. I'm just, I'm just not going to do it." Oh. <laughs> and I didn't know the irony of that because obviously, once the pandemic hit and we all started quarantining, it became very clear that this is a very bad time to launch cookbooks or uh-huh. books of any kind, really. So, um, that- funnily enough, <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: just as I'm sort of. Realizing that my poor book, which I referred to as my latchkey cookbook, (laughs) um, my poor book was going to come out during a time where it might not get the same kind of attention or people might not even have the same access to it as they would have under normal publishing circumstances. It came in the mail. The finished finished Mm. copy came in the mail. And it was so... I have to say uh, Aubrey Pick did the photography and her work is just so it, it's almost like a cookbook doesn't deserve to be that beautiful is is how I feel about it. Um, and Stephanie Huntwork did the layout. And I just, when I looked at it, I was like, Oh my God, I kind of fell in love with my cookbook, um, which was the first Your child. Right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then as I started to kind of like think about everything that was happening. I was like, this is so weird. this cookbook is so timely. Mm-hmm. how bizarre. Mm-hmm. And that was weird because it was sort of like, well, if it's timely and it can be of use, that makes me want to fight for it. I mean that makes me want to promote it and makes mm-hmm. me want to make sure as many people see it as possible. But I think on the other hand, you know you're mindful of the fact that we're living in, in the middle of something that's really horrific. Um, Mm -hmm. that's tragic and scary, and so you also have to get a certain reality check when you sit around being like, my cookbook's the most important thing right now, because obviously (laughs) it's not. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I did realize, wow, this book could be really useful, and Mm -hmm. on a selfish level, to have something like that to focus on in the middle of a situation that is full of so many things that you can't control, right. and where there's so many unknowns, it's actually there's something comforting in being able to, to have a cookbook even to complain about. So I'm very thankful for that. And I also really do think that if there's any way I can use the book to help people cook better right now, mm-hmm. um, I would be very, very, very excited to do that. So,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a great attitude. You know, it's like, we'll take the good where we can find it and exactly hope for the best. Um, yeah. I, I love that you dedicated this book to your brother who you say, didn't know how to boil water and called you one he day. Did
2: not. <laughs> He's so, he now is denying this and I'm just like, you can deny it all you want, but food writers don't make that up. It's traumatic <laughs> for us. It's traumatic for me to have him ask me how to boil water. <laughs> I'm not going to forget it anytime soon.
1: Okay, so, this so now is like,
2: he's downplaying it. <laughs> right,
1: right. So it sounds like your brother is like a total like worldly foodie. I don't know if that's the right term to use, but whatever. He's has a gusto for trying all kinds of food. Um, yeah. He's a taco expert and so forth. But he doesn't know how to cook any of it. He just no. consumes it.
2: And he grew up in a household where, there, where in addition to being really lucky that we were taken to restaurants all the time, my mom also cooked all the time. So mm-hmm. it's not like he grew up in a cave of like Kraft macaroni and cheese dinners mm-hmm. or something where no one was actually cooking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
2: so yeah, I find that fascinating. <laughs> there was no osmosis there whatsoever.
1: But I love what you did with this cookbook. So I think it's really genius because I've seen, you know, you've written that, you know, you've seen a lot of cookbooks and I I can see that you're like doing something really, really different. And it's very intentional where like, instead of like maybe organizing it by, I don't know, vegetables and then poultry or something, well, you sort of have that structure. But, you know, instead of maybe by seasons, you have this like really unique structure, which is you take a section And they're divided by, like, three ingredients. So you have, for instance, broccoli, leek, chicken stock, and then you have three recipes that work around that. Um, Or, you know, these are ingredients that you think have a connection to each other. Like, you write um, for the first one, potato, mushroom, and talasia. Aromatically, these ingredients are linked to one another like a daisy chain. It's it's so original. How'd you Uh, come up with that?
2: I, uh, well... It's it's funny. It was very – in two ways, probably more than that, but in, in two kind of direct ways. The first was I was in Seattle at Lara Hamilton's uh, shop book, Larder, for mm. my first book, Skirt Steak. I was doing an event there, and I am a cookbook junkie, and I have a real weakness for cookbooks from other countries, especially from the U.K., and after my event, when I should have been leaving and not spending money, I started buying cookbooks. And Laura was like, you know, I have this cookbook that came and it's a bit damaged. It's not like unusable or illegible. It's just I can't really like sell it at a regular price or put it out, but I think you would love it. <laughs> um, and it was this cookbook by uh, Hugh Fairly wittenstahl called Hugh's Three Good Things, which I don't know which came first, the book or the column or the TV show, but they were all related. And it was just each recipe featured three ingredients that he thought went really well together. So I remember distinctly the one that was tomatoes, saffron, and rice. And I like I loved how this cookbook looked, and I liked mm-hmm. the recipes. But honestly, my first thought when I saw it even then was – This would have been so much more instructive if instead of just giving us one recipe where he didn't Mm. really explain why the ingredients went together, he'd given us three recipes that use those ingredients so that he could have almost shown us without telling us or maybe Mm -hmm. done both why it is that those ingredients go well together or just how to put them together in different ways. And I remember Mm. having that thought back then um and just sort of sitting on it and just also thinking that that would be fun like that that was a fun idea mm-hmm. and when i was thinking about how to teach my brother how to cook i was thinking about what are ingredients that he likes and that mm-hmm. are not sort of like fussy ingredients or ingredients that are are like really particular you know that like yeah. people tend to only you know small numbers of people like. Right. Yeah, like un- sure. like kind of universally liked mm-hmm. ingredients that he likes that aren't expensive. I was just thinking about that. And I think I came up with like five. And I just thought, well, what if I just figured out how he could do a bunch of different dishes just using those same ingredients over and over. And so that was when it really all clicked. And when I was thinking about doing this cookbook, I thought, oh, that would be so fun. It would be fun for me, which is kind of important when you're working on a project because you do want to be excited about it. Um, But I thought it would also be a really good way to show people how to cook and how to think about cooking. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also thought it was something that if you didn't know how to cook, would sort of welcome you in. And if you already did know how to cook, would maybe just be something that made you rethink ingredients, if you've gotten bored, or just that you appreciated. Mm -hmm. Um, And in general, I'm someone who I always believe the more constraints you have, the more creative you become. So I just really liked having those sets of three. Just, yeah.
1: I love it. I love how there's something that almost mirrors like a menu, like you might see like I don't know. Like like here you have carrots plus cashews plus coconut. Like I can totally see that like underneath like pork chop, you know, like with like yeah. these three things on a menu. Um, so that's, yeah, I think it's an attractive – does your brother like this book? That's the real test, right? <laughs> I
2: mean, he's a very – I don't know. It's hard. You probably can't tell this from, from what I've told you. He's like a very taciturn person. So okay. He's not effusive and <laughs> – I know he really – it was – when when I got my copies of the book, I think I asked if – I think I had got – I think they sent me two and I asked if I could have a third so I could give one to my parents and then I could give one to him. And I left one for him and I just – I didn't – I just put a heart around the dedication. I just like wrote his name next to it and like that was it. We didn't have a big conversation about it. <laughs> and I, I do think he likes it. It's just – The irony of the fact that he was the inspiration for it and like he's never going to use it (laughs) (laughs) truly i don't think he's boiled water since we had our cooking lesson
1: (laughs) (laughs) well i think that i hope a lot of people um you know i think i'm sure a lot of people will like you know effusively praise like how much this this is um helpful and uh really really exciting book i mean i think that's there's a lot of things that like I thought about ingredients differently, um, just from looking at, but I want to get to ingredients in after our break. But just really quickly, um, you know, you have been, you have a long history of like writing books, both cookbooks, as well as like nonfiction. So your first book was the nonfiction book, um, kitchen, I mean, sorry, a skirt steak. Women Chefs yes. on Standing the Heat and Staying in the Kitchen. So that's 2012. And then you had a cookbook, Stir, Sizzle, Bake, Recipes for Your Cast Iron Skillet. Also, you co-wrote Anita Lowe's, um, you know, the groundbreaking chef, Anita Lowe of Anissa's first cookbook, which is Cooking Without Borders. And um, and then we talked about Women in Food, um, which was an anthology, and uh, which just got nominated for um a James Beard award yay so it's really exciting but um with this like varied background um I couldn't help but notice you know there's been a lot of discussion about cookbooks as of late and you're a cookbook junkie self-confessed um you had a few words on Twitter recently um so there's a thread
2: (laughs) (laughs) this is why I try to keep it reined in there on Twitter
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I thought you had a really interesting perspective, and maybe you want to elaborate on that. So this is a thread you were responding to Asai Endelin, a James Beard award-winning food writer who also is a contributor for Women and Food. Um, but you said you looked at a catalog for cook- for a cookbook publisher recently, and your takeaway was, quote, The current formula for scoring a book deal is as follows. Three simple rules for cookbook publishing. Basic food, no new faces, mostly white. And you added, this depresses me. So I feel like a lot of has been discussed about this issue of representation and who's allowed to, you know, get into a cookbook deal and so forth for, for quite a while. Um, like, you know, it's it's tough. It seems like it's a double, it's an even extra hurdle if you're a new face and it's a non-white face, right, to get a cookbook deal. Have you seen any changes, I guess, in the last while or or like just maybe more chatter about it? What do you well, think about this evolution?
2: This actually really made me think because I sort of had hoped or thought that we were moving a little bit forward. I mean, I think publishing always, especially food and cookbooks, we tend to have a pretty slow response rate. So Hmm. when things hit the zeitgeist, we tend to be kind of on the later end of reflecting that in what we put out into the world in terms of like content and product. Hmm. Um, And cookbooks are slower because they take longer to produce. So usually when you see a cookbook, you're seeing the result of two years of work, possibly more. So if we're looking at trends and how effective conversations are, you're going to have to wait at least two years to see if something that looks like it might even be a hint of change has actually come to the food world. Um, I am pretty cynical <laughs> and I, I wish that someone could calculate. I wish we had actually like someone could do some kind of equation or algorithm for this, what the time frame looks like between the period where people start talking about things, and then the period where we see actual change happen. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're in the phase now where we're talking about things, and that's great, but where I'm not seeing necessarily any real systemic change when it comes to the major institutions that control food media and publishing. Um, Mm -hmm. What was interesting to me about the catalog that I saw was it struck me for the first time that where we do tend to see maybe some more diversity are in the chef cookbooks because we have been embracing as restaurant goers. um, And I think as even just as food media reporters, storytellers, I think that we started with chefs. And I don't know then when you will start to see a shift in terms of Home cooking personalities, mm-hmm. um, and then those cookbooks. That's where I'm really seeing that lack of diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, though, Osai, Endelyn, and Stephen Satterfeld had a conversation um, with—is it, it Black Folks Food? Mm-hmm. That the Instagram account—it's fantastic. Um, but they did a conversation that I just—I think everyone should listen to. Because what they broke down was the fact that one of the reasons that we're not seeing more diversity in cookbooks is that the people at the top in publishing who are making these decisions are still mostly white. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really does make a difference. Because even when we see a cookbook author of color putting a book out, the person who got to tell them, yes was probably someone who did not look like them at all and and has very little connection to their culture or where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think that has so much to do with it. And again, to go back to that sort of comment that the institutions themselves have changed little, I think unless we Mm. see people in charge, editors, publishers, agents even, people who are making deals, unless we see that population start to reflect who we are really collectively, I I don't see much change happening or, or what you want to see honestly is you want to see more people like Steven Satterfeld going out there and building their own media companies and doing things differently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My, my whole take on this. and, And it's something I realized while I was doing the anthology is that if we can have lots of different models that are all viable Mm-hmm. That would really, first of all, it would be amazing, but it would also dilute whatever the standard with a capital S is, which is the thing that we've all kind of been bowing and, yeah. you know, honing to yeah. for all of these years. And that ends up shaping what what I see when I look at that catalog.
1: Right. I love it. And um, so just so, uh, just for anyone listening, that conversation was on um, the Instagram Black Food Folks Um, Account. Um, I I love that. Yeah, what you're saying. If we can just, you know, not try to, you know, if you can't, if you can't, what was the saying? If you can't beat them, if you can't beat them, join them. No. Anyway, I don't mean to say (laughs) that. Start your own magazine or publishing. I
2: think. I think it's the be the change you want to see.
1: Exactly. There. There we go. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. What was I going? If you can't beat him join him. oh whatever don't join him and don't try to don't him. join him don't succumb <laughs> right and uh uh on that note there was there is a new um uh, magazine um being launched by clancy miller and
2: yes which i'm so excited about yeah, yeah.
1: so um you can support that for the culture it's
2: for the culture yeah right
1: yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. There's so much more to talk about. I want to talk more about your cookbook and long career in food. Let's cut to a quick little commercial break and we'll be right back.
0: Cabot Creamery has been making the world's finest dairy products for over 100 years. Cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart because of their farmers' tireless dedication to quality and freshness, caring for their animals, and to healthy land and a sustainable future. More than a century after they started this journey, Cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most. Family and community, the simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart. That delicious products are the reward of a job well done. That when you love what you do this much, that the best is always still to come.
1: Okay, we're back chatting more with Charlotte Druckman, whose latest cookbook is Kitchen Remix. But I had no idea. Oh my goodness, you had written it in 2016. Yeah, so these that's are crazy. These are all like that's interesting. I don't know why that's that's so interesting to know, but um, it definitely. I mean, it seems when you were just saying that, you know cookbook publishing is a little like slow to the zeitgeist it seems very relevant it seems very current it seems like but it also seems like very evergreen too is that what you were going with like nothing like yeah. too trendy
2: i really wanted it to be evergreen and then when it got pushed back because my publisher was like but we have to do all these instant pot and (laughs) spiralizer cookbooks. I was totally chill about it because I thought, well, it'll keep, you know, Mm -hmm. it it wasn't a book that needed to come out. Whereas Women on Food I felt like was so Uh, of a moment in a way um, that I really fought to be able to get that done in time and have it come out first. But yeah, the cookbook, I I don't like trendy cookbooks. I'm not a trendy cookbook person. I I like cookbooks that last because I – keep my cookbooks for a really long time.
1: Hmm. What is a trendy cookbook?
2: I mean, you know what's sad? I was just thinking about this. I think there are a lot of cookbooks that come become retroactively trendy now yeah. because of recipes going viral. Mm. And if you just looked at those recipes on their own, there's not, nothing about them that's necessarily trendy or timely. Like if you made those dishes two years from now, they'd still be delicious. Mm -hmm. But because of how we sell and promote cookbooks now, and how important that sort of virality becomes, you get this effect where it's like, everyone sort of gets the memo or sees Mm -hmm. the Instagram that we're all supposed to be making the recipe for these this one batch of blondies right like these are the blondies they're the best blondies everyone needs to be making them and so everyone makes the blondies so that they can show you that they too have done the thing yeah um and i just imagine and it's and it's sort of like you can see that if it's not even blondies even with someone like showing a picture of a cookbook or sharing that they got this new cookbook and they're so excited but what happens is it ends up having this really short lifespan where it's like, okay, so for the next three weeks everyone's gonna make the blondies, but then <laughs> it's gonna be like, oh God, you relate to the game, how embarrassing. You can't, oh, you know, couldn't yeah. it possibly be making the blondies now. You know? So it becomes almost like passe mm-hmm. really fast. And not mm-hmm. because it wasn't a good recipe. And this goes to I had a conversation with Paula Forbes, who does the wonderful newsletter, the same page. And she was saying, yeah, because the way people are writing cookbooks now is that it's more like a collection of recipes than it is a book Mm -hmm. as sort of an organic holistic thing, which I thought was really interesting. So I think, yeah. And I think that's definitely one way that we get this sort of trendy cookbook effect without people having had the intention to even write a trendy cookbook. I think it's just about how things get sold and marketed. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you will see things like, like Instant Pot or Spiralizer or, you know, paleo or air fryer, like things where keto, (laughs) like it just, these things come out and they are actually very on trend. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm seeing a lot now of a kind of cooking that's like, I don't know what to call it. It's like a sanitized modern global Mm. where you see these ingredients that are non-Western incorporated into dishes that are kind of bland and kind of Western, but they seem modern for the fact that they incorporated the tahini. You know what I mean? Right. And, and, (laughs) I'm not. I like to put tahini in all kinds of things. Um, so I'm not saying I'm not even part of this. But but the worst example is when you see these recipes that are really anodyne, and where those inspirations or ingredients have not been included in the story of the recipe. So it's right. like really decontextualized. And there's a certain sameness to the food, you mm. know. So I, I joked for a while, it was like, and and I have, I have a roasted carrots recipe in my cookbook. <laughs> but like, there's just this phase where the number of roasted spiced carrot recipes. yeah, And I feel like they always had yogurt and maybe avocado. Mm-hmm. And it was like a roasted, and I traced it back. I actually think I traced it back to either an April Bloomfield dish or a dish at ABC market in New York city. That was Mm -hmm. like a carrot salad with cumin and avocado, but like just, you will just see like dishes like that and everyone doing some version of it or everyone doing a version of like a banana bread or of a Tahini Blondie or you know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like, there are these dishes that keep coming up that are that are safe in a sense but that have some in quotes twists where the twist is an ingredient that has now become accepted into the western pantry
1: right are we are we talking a little bit about like for example um the recipe some of the recipes at least that go viral from a certain cookbook author whose initials are are. (laughs) AR.
2: i don't I don't want to blame it on her because I actually think her stuff is indicative of of a bigger trend. Yeah. Like, I don't yeah. think she's the I only agree. person doing it and I don't think she's responsible. And I will say as much as I don't like that decontextualization that mm-hmm. happens at all, and I do think that any cookbook author or any recipe writer that's going to be doing that needs to be – talking about where these ingredients and ideas come from. She's mm-hmm. a very good recipe developer. There are a lot of people out there who write recipes that don't work and, and who, you know, so yes, I know, I know what you're saying. And yes, her recipes yeah. are completely the epitome of right. what I'm talking about. But, but it's not it,
1: the only her. Yeah. It's she's not, not just one.
2: her. No, she's part of a cultural phenomenon. Um, yeah. And a phenomenon that a lot of mainstream food publications are profiting from, Mm
1: -hmm. which I like to point out. And I mean, I think that it's interesting because how you described it, the sanitized international, I I toss and turn over whether that's super intentional or not. And it does seem like, for better or for worse, um, doing it without being specific about a certain international cuisine, a certain... um, country you know of origin or a little bit more deeper context maybe voices from that who who are close to that cuisine Uh, is that is that like I don't know if that's like the secret to the secret ingredient (laughs) to like no how viral how it went so viral or not um it worries me
2: well I have a few thoughts about that one I do think it's it's very interesting it's like when the American process of that combination of like assimilation and innovation mm-hmm. when it when it's right you actually get some really amazing things happening in food you know like yes we see things that have come out of someone coming to this country from another place and not having what they needed and then yep. getting creative and then we get these amazing things and that i've always thought was great and i think that there's probably a way to do that, even if you're just a white American person mm-hmm. who's excited by lots of different ingredients, I do think that there are ways to put things together where you can make them original and you're not going to eat a thing and be like, wait, but this is a curry. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I do think that that's possible. And I actually think that that happens. And I think I it's do. wonderful yeah. when it happens. Um, so, I think that yeah I think there's a way we could look at this where we where we almost said but this is such an American phenomenon this sort mm-hmm. of like taking things and putting yeah. them together and making something new the problem is when you make something that's derivative and it's derivative of a culture that's not your own and then you don't credit it
0: right
1: Absolutely. I think that was so well said. And I, I think that there's something also to be said for looking at the multitudes in, in ingredients. Like when you said tahini, it's like it's also it's a roasted sesame. There's also roasted exactly. sesame paste. Right. And, and then yeah. you can make these connections and you geek out about how cool it is that like different cultures have this love of this ingredient. And, uh, you know, it's just so fascinating and it seems like a lost opportunity to talk about and to, you know gush yeah, about these and, things.
2: and i actually think not to like <laughs> promote my cookbook but i think when you <laughs> yeah, do start please. thinking about it from from the point of view of ingredients like i remember there's um a website i love for japanese ingredients mm-hmm. and it's got a, I think it's called like the Japanese pantry. Like it's it's such a generic name, but they had they source just the most beautiful ingredients. And I get my sesame seeds from from Mm -hmm. there. And they had um a black sesame paste. Mm -hmm. And I got really excited because I was like, I wonder, I do this a lot. I was like, but I wonder what would happen if. I took a recipe that called for tahini and Mm -hmm. I used the black sesame paste just to see the difference because the flavor tends to be like a little bit smokier, like, you know what I mean? Yep. And just doing stuff like that, by the way, it changes the flavor in subtle ways, but it also again starts taking you out of maybe a specific country's food. Like if you're like, well, I'm going to try and make a hummus, but I'm going to start using Japanese ingredients in it instead – you're going to start getting something really interesting happening that isn't necessarily even a hummus anymore, but you also wouldn't call it Japanese. And I think that for me, I mean, again, this is like, we all have our ways of cooking and we geek out over things. Mm -hmm. I also go through phases with spices. Yeah. (laughs) Where I'll just decide, like, I just couldn't, I just felt like Americans were really lazy about cinnamon. Like cinnamon was always when someone was baking and added a spice, it was always cinnamon.
1: That's true.
2: started getting tired of cinnamon. I love it, but like I was tired of it. So I started conducting experiments where I'd be like, every time someone calls for cinnamon, I'm going to use nutmeg. And then I did it with cardamom. And now Mm -hmm. I've moved on to coriander because I'm having like a love affair moment with coriander. And honestly, I love doing things like this. And again, it really, it changes flavor profiles of things in ways that you didn't expect. And it does take them out of a familiar set of flavors too that you might identify with a particular dish mm-hmm. or a particular culture.
1: Or maybe the particular culture is America. Well, oh, sorry to be cheesy. Oh,
2: <laughs> true. That's also true because that is a culture. It is not not yeah. a culture. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um oh my goodness. Uh yeah, I think there's there's I mean, we could talk all day about this. Um, We're running a little bit out of time, though. So I do want to get back to some of the flavor combinations in your book, um, which do to me like you you kind of exemplify how you can take um, you can take three ingredients in really different directions. Right. So. Um, for instance, there is lamb shoulder and date and chickpeas. So this one screamed to me a little bit like Moroccan. Like, what did you think? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Something like that.
2: I was, I was thinking Moroccan um, and also, I guess, so you, like North African, but also kind of like Middle Eastern and Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So there was that, but then, uh, you know, you start, you start to kind of just think about flavors that you really like. I had wanted to do the, the idea of, you know, the now iconic bosom, the momofuku bosom. I feel like it's Sam Sifton's favorite thing. He (laughs) loves that bosom. I think he just did his own version of it, of the pork shoulder in his cookbook, but I had wanted to do it with a, a lamb shoulder, like forever, And as soon as I had this trio in my head, I knew. I was like, great, this means I get to do my lamb shoulder version of Boson now. But of course, I didn't want it to be Korean flavors just because I'm working with dates and chickpeas and I just, my mind wasn't going in that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was that dish was one of, I think, that dish was probably the dish that. Actually maybe not. I'm trying to think with a lot of them there's usually one dish that sort of was like the start yeah. of the trio, you know? You can't remember now. If it wasn't Yeah, if it wasn't that dish when I was I think I say this in the head note, when I was in 4th grade. Mm-hmm. This is like so telling it's of so cute. the col- Yeah, the, but also <laughs> of the sort of of like the Columbusing that went on in in these like so-called progressive like liberal private schools where they were like this this section, we will study the Bedouins. Uh-huh, <laughs> it's like, uh-huh. now we will study the Whoa. Bedouins. And I, I will never forget this because it was where we first learned actually how to write a report. They made us put every single fact on an index card and then organize the index cards and organize the piles of index cards. It was like how to write an outline, how to write an introduction, how to write. I, so I will never forget it. Mm. I will also never forget because I... Other people got things like – we each got a topic to cover. People Mm -hmm. got things like food. People got things like religion. People got things like, you know, um, motherhood or whatever. And I got customs, which I thought was unfair because I thought there's a fine line between actually a custom and a religious right. Uh I had a really hard time with this even as a nine-year-old. And I remember having – not an incident with my teacher, but where we kept having this thing between what is the difference between a custom and a habit oh. and like a religious belief that results <laughs> in an action. I don't understand. I don't know. Anyway,
1: yeah, I was very
2: confused. I'm still confused. Mm. At, the, at the end, and I will say this is not to make a joke, but I think it's probably because I'm Jewish and all of that stuff is so – bound up. If you're Jewish, ah. they're like such overlap between what's religious and what's cultural that okay. I'm not surprised in hindsight that that was confusing to me. Mm. Um, anyway, at the end of this block of time where we studied and, and wrote about the Bedouins, we had a meal where we were all supposed to come together and bring in a dish that was, if not authentic, then like inspired by Sort of Bedouin nomadic cuisine, and my mom had this recipe for lamb and apricot pilaf. Mm-hmm. And she said, "I'm going to make it," and I loved this dish. I loved it so much; it's like still one of my favorite dishes. Um, except, I I felt like she could cook her rice differently. Mm. flush better sorry okay anyway so i know that if it wasn't the bosom then i actually wanted to do that dish but i wanted to do it with dates and with chickpeas instead of having it be lamb and apricot um so that was so it it, those two dishes were informed by that and then you also had in that case you know you're trying with each of these things it's it's so good i I i I made the rice a little bit more like it gets sort of crunchy on the bottom. I changed the rice a little bit, um,
0: okay.
2: and I think it's better <laughs> personally. And and I love dates so much, so I think uh, my version of the pilaf is better. I'm sorry, <laughs> I still love my mom's. Um,
1: I just thought it all came like, about from a third grade report.
2: <laughs> totally, totally, and um. Yeah, and yeah, because those things like stick with you. Yeah. But I think the thing the thing with the cookbook was you wanted, if if possible, and depending on what ingredients you had, you kind of wanted each recipe to sh- teach people how to treat the ingredient differently. Hmm. So yeah. you didn't want to repeat the same technique being used I see. I on the it. lamb. So you, so you have, have the you bosom. Can. Yeah, right. It's mm-hmm. a really slow roast of a mm-hmm. big piece of meat, and then when you do. A, a, a pilaf idea, you know, you're sort of doing it like a stew, but then you're also cooking it together at the end with the rice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for the next dish, I wanted to do something that was more like a straight up stew. And then I wanted to do sort of flavors inspired by Southern India, just because I love personally, I love lamb and coconut together so much. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about, the use of coconut and spice in Southern India. And that was kind of where that stew came from, which I, which I explained in the head note right. that there's an ishtu stew that's actually vegetarian. <laughs> so that this <laughs> is in no way an ishtu <laughs> stew, but the flavor profiles of that stew. Carolyn style. Um, yeah. Yeah. I really wanted to have in that lamb dish, but yeah. So you, in each of those, you're learning a different, technique and and the same thing happens with the chickpeas mm-hmm. um and even to some extent with the dates although dates don't really require that much to, t- dates aren't really a, a technique driven ingredient
1: right mm. except
2: well, this, they're a you... pain to chop
1: <laughs> did you I really I a
2: mean to chop <laughs>
1: <laughs> i love how specific each each i think that you just like kind of really really illustrated your book as a whole like they're all very very specific and very colorful um different takes on on you know three ingredients and um i love geeking out i love learning more that you know about each one you know it's an it seems like an invitation to kind of find out oh here's let me check out the real like you know the traditional carolyn style issue or something um so thanks for thanks for those tidbits (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <Back>. <laughs> yeah. that stuff is actually really, and not because of the conversation we had before, but that's really important to me
1: uh-huh.
2: because I like people to know how I came to the recipe because right. I think that's another way that you teach people how to cook or mm-hmm. how to think about cooking. So Absolutely. it's like you want, I want to credit obviously the the places that inspired the food, but I also want someone to understand that you could be reading about a dish that was made in another part of the world entirely and you don't have to think that that doesn't apply to what you're making for dinner the question is just how do you make it apply
1: mhm absolutely and i love how you write you know this book you know you want people to to adapt with it it's a it's an invitation to apply these skills essential maybe ideas of ingredients and and so forth and and you know adapt with it as you go along with your life. So yeah,
2: I love hearing how people were cooking from it and didn't have an ingredient and use something else. Cause it's, it's like the whole point in a way. I mean, that's the remixing mm-hmm.
1: the remix of the kitchen. Um, well, that's, a, I think that's well. that will be a great place to end for today since we're a little bit over, but um, it's been a really, really awesome conversation with you today, Charlotte. And I, I yeah, we could go on all day. That would be yeah. really fun. <laughs> but thank you so much for taking the time. And I know you have some fun events coming up, right? You're doing a cooking. I, I, I don't yeah, know.
2: Yeah, I'm doing a talk. To- well, I, it's funny, I think, because I'm um, a bit of an introvert by nature, I'm actually not minding these zoom events Uh like i don't mind being on my living room couch (laughs) and having events like i'm cool with it um and the thing i love about it is that you get to do events with people you wouldn't otherwise because you live in two different places so paula forbes and i got to do a talk together i was so excited i've always wanted to do something with her and she lives in austin um so yeah, Joe Perfect. Yonan and I are doing a Smithsonian talk about pantry cooking and our cookbooks because he has cool beans right uh, that came out. And so, I, yeah, I'm really looking forward to I love all of these talks. I'm appreciating them so much more now because of quarantine, but also because, yeah, it is a hard time to launch a cookbook. So thank you for yeah. having me on the show and asking me to talk about it.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for being um, such a thoughtful guest and I uh, hope everyone checks out your, your Instagram, your Instagram lives and, and, um, and uh, continued work. So um, you're at char Drux on Instagram and set Drux yes. on Twitter. So yeah. thank you. Thank you so much thank again, Charlotte. You, I hope everyone gets their hands on kitchen remix and more. So thank you to Jeet, our engineer today, and everyone at Heritage Radio Network. We'll see you next week. Eat Your Words is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter.